It's not just me. Debbie Allen's career in dance, acting, singing, producing, writing and directing has dazzled and touched millions. Her career soared in 1980 with the hit TV series Fame. She holds the distinction of having choreographed the Academy Awards for six consecutive years, and she's won many awards herself, including the Essence Award in 1992 and 1995. She's the founder and director of the Debbie Allen Dance Academy, which offers professional training for young dancers and professionals. It also commissions opportunities for new choreographers and provides an introduction to dance for all ages. As a young child, she told me, very young, four or five years old, I can remember putting on my pink shiny bathing suit and tying a towel around my neck, climbing a tree and dancing on the roof of my house performing to the birds and the clouds. I was always dancing as a little girl. I was inspired by the beautiful pictures of ballerinas. Because I was black and lived in Texas, I hadn't seen a dance performance, but I watched musical films, Shirley Temple, Ruby Keeler, The Nicholas Brothers. When the Ringling Brothers Circus came to town, when I saw the spectacle, the people in beautiful costumes and the dancers flying in the air, toes pointed, I just thought it was amazing. I was so inspired by movies, Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev were the most incredible things I'd ever seen. As a young girl, I couldn't go to serious dance schools, she said, because everything was segregated. I joined DeBarto Studios. I got a full grant scholarship and attended ten dance classes a week. I still remember my first dance recital. I wore a white, shiny satin skirt, a white jacket and orange blouse, white tap shoes, and was playing a triangle. The feeling of performing, she said, was like being on top of the world. I was always wearing leotards as a child. In fact, at my 50th birthday party, one of my aunts brought a picture of me at age five in my leotard. I knew I was a dancer very early on. I first saw the Alvin Ailey Company, she said, at age 17. I knew then that I was going to throw away my point shoes, put on high heels and long white skirts, and dance to that kind of music. I identified myself with them so much on stage. It was glorious. One summer, I went to the Spolito Dance Festival in the Carolinas, and that was when it all fell into place for me. I had ideas as a child, but I was challenged by segregation, and so this opportunity to be taught by Dudley Williams in those classes was amazing. Alvin Ailey was there. The resident dance company taught Revelations dance classes, and I just shone. They wanted me in the company, but Alvin thought I was too young. I never joined them, but I knew I had to do that kind of dancing and teach. She told me, The Debbie Allen Dance Academy is born out of my desire to give back. It offers all styles of dance, from flamenco, African, modern and character, to tap and hip-hop. We have incredible teachers from all over the world. Every child has the right to learn to dance. It's an incredible language. These are not the kids that are going to get into trouble, believe me. Connecting with people who share the same passions affirms that you're not alone, that there are others like you, and that while many might not understand your passion, some do. It doesn't matter whether you like the people as individuals or even the work they do. It's perfectly possible that you don't. What matters first is having validation for the passion you have in common. Finding your tribe brings the luxury of talking shop, of bouncing ideas around, of sharing and comparing techniques, and of indulging your enthusiasms or hostilities for the same things. Making this connection was a significant spur to many of the people we've met so far in this book, from Matt Groening to Eva Lawrence to Meg Ryan to Black Ice and to many of those ahead. Being among other artists at Cranbrook gave Don Lipsky a deeper sense that what he was doing mattered and was actually worth doing. He said... In graduate school, I started taking seriously, for the first time, the little doodles I'd made. If I saw a rubber band in the street, I'd pick it up and then start looking for something to wrap around it, or combine it with. That's the sort of activity I'd always done. But when I was in graduate school, I realised that that indeed was sculpture. Although modest, it really was art-making and not just passing time. Some people are most in their element when they're working alone. This is often true of mathematicians, poets, painters and some athletes. Even with these people, though, there's a tacit awareness of a field. The other writers, other painters, other mathematicians, other players who enrich the domain and challenge their sense of possibility. The great philosopher of science, Michael Polanyi, argues that the free and open exchange of ideas is the vital pulse of scientific inquiry. 
Scientists like to work on their own ideas and questions, but science is also a collaborative venture. Scientists, he says, freely making their own choice of problems and pursuing them in the light of their own personal judgment are in fact cooperating as members of a closely knit organisation. Polanyi argues passionately against state control of science because it can destroy the free interactions on which genuine science depends. Any attempt to organise the group, he says, under a single authority would eliminate their independent initiatives and thus reduce their joint effectiveness to that of the single person directing them from the centre. It would, in effect, paralyse their cooperation. It was partly this pressure on science that made Helen Pilcher jump ship from stem cells to the comedy stage. Interaction with the field, in person or through their work, is as vital to our development as time alone with our own thoughts. As the physicist John Wheeler said, if you don't kick things around with people, you're out of it. Nobody, I always say, can be anybody without somebody being around. Even so, the rhythms of community life vary in the element, just as they do in daily life. Sometimes you want company, sometimes you don't. The physicist Freeman Dyson says that when he's writing, he closes the door. But when he's actually doing science, he leaves it open. Up to a point, he says, you welcome being interrupted, because it's only by interacting with other people that you get anything interesting done. How do they do that? Finding your tribe offers more than validation and interaction, important as both of those are. It provides inspiration and provocation to raise the bar on your own achievements. In every domain, members of a passionate community tend to drive each other to explore the real extent of their talents. Sometimes the boost comes not from close collaboration, but from the influence of others in the field, whether contemporaries or predecessors, whether directly associated with one's particular domain or associated only marginally. As Isaac Newton famously said, if I saw further, it was because I stood on the shoulders of giants. This is not just a phenomenon of science. Bob Dylan was born in Hibbing, Minnesota in 1942. In his autobiography, Chronicles, he tells of his sense of alienation from the people there, from his family and from the popular culture of the day. He knew he had to get away from there to become whoever he was going to be. His one lifeline was folk music. Folk music, he said, was all I needed to exist. I had no other cares or interests besides folk music. I scheduled my life around it. I had little in common with anyone not like-minded. As soon as he could, he moved on instinct to New York City. There he found the artists, the singers, the writers and the scene that began to unleash his own talents. He'd begun to find his people. But among all of those who inspired and shaped his passion, there was one who led him to an artistic place that he'd never imagined. When he first heard Woody Guthrie, he said, it was like a million megaton bomb had dropped. One afternoon in the early 1960s in New York City, a friend invited Dylan to look through his record collection. It included a few record albums of old 78s. One was the Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall, a collection of performances by Count Basie, Mead Lux Lewis, Joe Turner and Pete Johnson, Sister Rosetta Tharp and others. Another was a Woody Guthrie set of about 12 double-sided records. Dylan had listened casually to some of Guthrie's recordings when he was living in Hibbing, but hadn't paid them close attention. This day in New York City was going to be different. Dylan put one of the old 78s on the turntable. And when the needle dropped, he said, I was stunned. I didn't know if I was stoned or straight. He listened in trance to Guthrie singing solo a range of his own compositions. Ludlow Massacre, 1913 Massacre, Jesus Christ, Pretty Boy Floyd, Hard Travelling, Jack Hammer John, Grand Cooley Dam, Pastures of Plenty, Talking Dust Bowl Blues, and This Land is Your Land. All of these songs together, said Dylan, one after another, made my head spin. It made me want to gasp. It was like the land parted. I'd heard Guthrie before, but mainly just a song here and there, mostly things that he sang with other artists. I hadn't actually heard him, not in this earth-shattering kind of way. I couldn't believe it. Guthrie had such a grip on things. He was so poetic and tough and rhythmic. There was so much intensity, and his voice was like a stiletto. 
Guthrie sang like no other singer Dylan had listened to, and he wrote songs like no one he'd ever heard. Everything about Guthrie, his style, his content, his mannerisms, came to Dylan as a revelation of what folk music could be and had to be. It all just about knocked me down, he said. It was like the record player itself had just picked me up and flung me across the room. I was listening to his diction too. He'd perfected a style of singing that it seemed like no one else had ever thought about. He would throw in the sound of the last letter of a word whenever he felt like it, and it would come like a punch. The songs themselves, his repertoire, were really beyond category. They had the infinite sweep of humanity in them. Not one mediocre song in the bunch. Woody Guthrie tore everything in his path to pieces. For me, it was an epiphany, like some heavy anchor had just plunged into the waters of the harbour. Dylan listened to Guthrie for the rest of that day, as if in a trance, as he put it. It wasn't only a moment of revelation about Guthrie, it was a moment of truth for Dylan. I felt, he said, like I'd discovered some essence of self-command, that I was in the internal pocket of the system feeling more like myself than ever before. A voice in my head said, so this is the game. I could sing all these songs, every single one of them, and they were all that I wanted to sing. It was like I'd been in the dark and someone had turned on the main switch of a lightning conductor. By travelling to New York City to find like-minded people, Dylan was looking for himself. By discovering the journey of Woody Guthrie, he began to imagine his own. Like Newton, he saw further because he stood on the shoulders of giants. Circles of Influence Tribes are circles of influence, and they can take many forms. They may be scattered far and wide, or huddled closely together. They may be present only in your thoughts, or physically present in the room with you. They may be alive, or dead and living only through their works. They may be confined to a single generation, or cross over them. Nobel laureate Richard Feynman spoke of ultra-miniaturised machines long before anyone had any thought of creating such things. Years later, Marvin Minsky, inspired by Feynman's idea, became the founding father of artificial intelligence and moved the conversation forward. Then, K. Eric Drexler approached Minsky at MIT and asked the esteemed professor to sponsor his thesis on miniature devices. That thesis served as the foundation for Drexler's pioneering work in nanotechnology. Through an extended, multi-generational tribe, a concept that critics dismissed as purely science fiction when Feynman introduced it became a reality. When tribes gather in the same place, the opportunities for mutual inspiration can become intense. In all domains, there have been powerful groupings of people who have driven innovation through their influence on each other and the impetus they have created as a group. Sociologist Randall Collins writes about how nearly all great philosophical movements came via the dynamics of tribes. In ancient Greece, the history of philosophy, he said, can be recounted in terms of a series of interlinked groups, the Pythagorean Brotherhood and its offshoots. Socrates' circle, which spawned so many others, the acute debaters of the Megara school, Plato's friends who constituted the academy, the breakaway faction that became Aristotle's peripatetic school the restructuring of the network that crystallised with Epicurus and his friends withdrawing into their garden community, and their rivals, the Athenian Stoics, with their revisionist circles at Rhodes and Rome, the successive movements at Alexandria. If it can happen in ancient Greece, it can happen in Hollywood. The documentary Easy Riders Raging Bulls examines what they describe as the raucous, inspired and occasionally sordid cultural revolution that led to the reinvention of Hollywood filmmaking in the 1960s. In a few short years, the bobby socks and beach blankets that characterise wholesome 1950s Americana were replaced with sex, drugs and rock and roll. Inspired by the French New Wave and British New Cinema, a new generation of directors and actors set out to revolutionise American cinema and make films that express their personal vision. The breakthrough successes of landmark films such as Easy Rider, The Godfather and Taxi Driver gave these filmmakers unprecedented financial and creative independence. The box office and critical success of their films forced the old guard of the Hollywood studio system to relinquish their power. This became the age of a new breed of iconic filmmakers such as Francis Ford Coppola, Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese, Peter Bogdanovich and Dennis Hopper. With each success, the filmmakers gained greater creative control. 
They created a culture of feverish innovation as each inspired the others to explore new themes and forms for popular movies. This newfound freedom also gave birth to an explosion of excess, ego, soaring budgets and a seemingly endless supply of drugs. Eventually, the filmmakers' mutual support and encouragement degenerated into intense competition and bitter rivalries. The emergence from this culture of blockbuster movies such as Jaws and Star Wars changed the landscape of Hollywood films once again, and creative and financial control returned to the hands of the studios. The power of tribal clustering was clear too in the period of wild invention surrounding the software industry that accompanied the dawn of the personal computer. Silicon Valley has had a huge impact on digital technology. But as Dorothy Leonard and Walter Swap have noted, it's surprisingly small geographically. Viewing the valley from the flight approach to San Francisco International, they say, one is struck by how small the region is. As Venture Law Group's Craig Johnson notes, Silicon Valley is like any gas that's compressed. It gets hotter. Its tribes overlap socially and professionally based on work discipline. Software engineers, for example, organizational affiliation, like Hewlett Packard, or background, Stanford MBAs or South Asian immigrants. The most skillful players don't have to travel far to make deals, change jobs or find professional partners. John Durr of Kleiner Perkins is fond of saying that the Valley is a place where you can change your job without changing your parking spot. Shared values also bind long-time Silicon Valley natives. The personal convictions of the Valley's remarkable innovators who created not just a company, but an industry, still echo through the community. Bill Hewlett and David Packard influenced the older generation directly. Many of them were early employees. Through this old guard, collegiality and high standards for performance are being carried down to next-generation entrepreneurs. Other examples of tribes inspiring individuals to greater heights abound. The sports teams, the 1969 New York Knicks, the no-name defence of the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins, the 1991 Minnesota Twins, that performed as a collective that was more distinguished than any of the individuals, the Bauhaus movement in architecture in the early decades of the 20th century. In each case, the physical clustering of a tribe of creative individuals led to explosive innovation and growth. The Alchemy of Synergy The most dramatic example of the power of tribes is the work of actual creative teams. In Organising Genius, The Secrets of Creative Collaboration, Warren Bennis and Pat Ward-Biederman write of what they call great groups, collections of people with similar interests who create something much greater than any of them could create individually, who become more than the sum of the parts. A great group can be a goad, a check, a sounding board, they say, and a source of inspiration, support and even love. The combination of creative energies and the need to perform at the highest level to keep up with peers leads to an otherwise unattainable commitment to excellence. This is the alchemy of synergy. One of the best examples of this is the creation of Miles Davis's landmark album, Kind of Blue. While music lovers of every sort widely consider the recording a must-have, and legions of jazz fans, and classical and rock fans for that matter, know each note of the album by heart, None of the players on that album knew what they were going to play before they entered the studio. In the original liner notes to the album, pianist Bill Evans says that Miles conceived these settings only hours before the recording dates and arrived with sketches which indicated to the group what was to be played. Therefore, says Evans, you will hear something close to pure spontaneity in these performances. The group had never played these pieces prior to the recordings and I think without exception the first complete performance of each was a take. In fact, the songs that appear on the album are all the first full takes, with the exception of Flamenco Sketches, which was a second take. When trumpeter Miles Davis gathered Evans, along with tenor saxophonist John Coltrane, alto saxophonist Julian Cannonball Adderley, pianist Winton Kelly, bassist Paul Chambers and drummer Jimmy Cobb in the studio in 1959, he laid out the scales itself somewhat revolutionary, since jazz at the time was traditionally built around chord changes. And then he turned on the tape recorder. Each of these players was an active participant in the tribe moving jazz in new directions at that time, and they'd worked together in the past. 
What happened during the kind of blue sessions, though, was a perfect storm of affirmation, inspiration, and synergy. These artists set out to break barriers. They had the skill to take their music in new directions, and they had a leader with a bold vision. Their improvisational work that day was the result of powerful creative forces merging and creating something outsized, the ultimate goal of synergy. When the tape started rolling, magic happened. Group improvisation is a further challenge, said Evans. Aside from the weighty technical problem of collective coherent thinking, there's the very human, even social need for sympathy from all members to bend for the common result. This most difficult problem, he said, is beautifully met and solved on this recording. The music they created in those next few hours, working with each other, playing off each other, synchronizing with each other, challenging each other, would last several lifetimes. Kind of Blue is the best-selling jazz album of all time, and, nearly 50 years later, still sells thousands of copies every week. Why can creative teams achieve more together than they can separately? I think it's because they bring together the three key features of intelligence that I described earlier. In a way, they model the essential features of the creative mind. Great creative teams are diverse. They're composed of very different sorts of people with different but complementary talents. The team that created Kind of Blue was made up of extraordinary musicians who not only played different instruments, but brought with them different musical sensibilities and types of personality. This was true too of the Beatles. For all that they had in common, culturally and musically, Lennon and McCartney were very different as people, and so too were George Harrison and Ringo Starr. It was their differences that made their creative work together greater than the sum of their individual parts. Creative teams are dynamic. Diversity of talents is important, but it's not enough. Different ways of thinking can be an obstacle to creativity. Creative teams find ways of using their differences as strengths, not weaknesses. They have a process through which their strengths are complementary and compensate for each other's weaknesses too. They're able to challenge each other as equals and to take criticism as an incentive to raise their game. Creative teams are distinct. There's a big difference between a great team and a committee. Most committees do routine work and have members who are theoretically interchangeable with other people. Committee members are usually there to represent specific interests. Often a committee can do its work while half the members are checking their blackberries or studying the wallpaper. Committees are often immortal. They seem to persist forever, and so often do their meetings. Creative teams have a distinctive personality and come together to do something specific. They're together only for as long as they want to be or have to be to get the job done. One of the most famous examples of powerful teamwork is the administration of President Abraham Lincoln. In her book, Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin tells the story of Lincoln and four members of his cabinet, Edward M. Stanton, Secretary of War, Salmon P. Chase, Secretary of the Treasury, William H. Seward, Secretary of State, and Edward Bates, the Attorney General. These five men were unquestionably part of the same tribe, passionate in their desire to lead and move America forward. However, each of the four others had opposed Lincoln openly and bitterly prior to his presidency. Stanton once even called Lincoln a long-armed ape. Each had strongly held positions that sometimes differed greatly from Lincoln's. In addition, each of them believed they were more deserving of the presidency than the man the people had elected. Still, Lincoln believed that each of these rivals had strengths the administration needed. With an equanimity difficult to imagine in current American politics, he brought this team together. They argued ceaselessly and often viciously. What they found in working with each other, though, was the ability to forge their differing opinions into sturdy national policy, navigating the country through its most perilous period through the effort of their combined wisdom. Lost in the crowd There's an important difference between being in a tribe, as I'm defining it, and being part of a crowd, even when the members of a crowd are all there for the same reason and feel the same passions. Sports fans come to mind immediately. There are vociferous and passionate fans all over the sports landscape. Football devotees in Green Bay, soccer, or as those from the rest of the world know it, football, enthusiasts in Manchester, ice hockey zealots in Montreal and so on. They cover their walls, their cars and their front lawns with team paraphernalia. They might know the regular lineup for their local teams when they finished in fourth place in 1988. 
They might have postponed their weddings because the date conflicted with the World Series or the European Cup. They're dedicated to their teams, rhapsodic about their teams, and their moods might be dictated by the performance of their teams. But their fandom doesn't place them in a tribe with their fellow fans, at least not in the way that I'm describing it here. Fan behaviour is a different form of social affiliation. Some people, including Henri Tafel and John Turner, refer to this as social identity theory. They argue that people often derive a large sense of who they are through affiliation with specific groups and tend to associate themselves closely with groups likely to boost their self-esteem. Sports teams make fans feel as though they're part of a vast, powerful organisation. This is especially true when the teams are winning. Look around at the end of any sports season and you'll notice team jerseys of that season's champion sprouting all over the street, even in places far distant from the team's home city. Fans boast their affiliation with victorious teams much more loudly because at some level they believe that being associated in a tangential way with such a team makes them look better. The social psychologist Robert Cialdini has a term for this. He calls it basking in reflected glory, or berging. In the 1970s, Cialdini and others conducted a study about berging and found that students at a number of American universities were much more likely to wear university-related clothing on the Monday after their school won a football game. They also found that students were more likely to use the pronoun we regarding the team, as in, we destroyed state on Saturday, than they were if their team lost. In the latter instance, the pronoun usually switched to they, as in, I can't believe they blew that game. The point about berging, as it relates to our definition of tribes, is that the person doing the basking has little or nothing to do with the glory achieved. We'll give a tiny bit of credit to the effect of fan support if the fan attended the actual sports event. Though serious sports fans are a notoriously superstitious lot, only the most irrational among them actually believe that their actions, wearing the same hat to every game, sitting perfectly still during a rally, using a specific brand of charcoal during the tailgate party, have any impact on the results. Membership of a fan group, whether it's the Cheeseheads or Red Sox Nation, is not the same as being in a tribe. In fact, such membership can create the opposite effect. Tribe membership, as I define it here, helps people become more themselves, leading them towards a greater sense of personal identity. On the other hand, we can easily lose our identity in a crowd, including a group of fans. Being a fan is about being partisan, cheering or jeering and finding joy in victory and agony in defeat. This might be fulfilling and thrilling in many ways, but it normally doesn't take you to the element as a means of self-realisation. In fact, fandom is in many ways a form of what psychologists rather awkwardly call de-individuation. This means losing your sense of identity through becoming part of a group. Extreme forms of de-individuation lead to mob behaviour. If you've ever been to a European soccer match, you know how this can apply to the sports world. But even in more benign versions, it results in a sense of anonymity that leads people to lose inhibitions and sometimes perform acts they later regret, and in most cases do things outside their normal personalities. In other words, these actions can take you far from your true self. My youngest brother Neil used to be a professional soccer player for Everton, one of the major teams in Britain. Whenever I was in Liverpool, I would watch him play. It was an exhilarating and often terrifying experience. Football fans in Liverpool are very enthusiastic, let's say. They're passionate about winning, and when things on the pitch aren't going as well as they'd like, they willingly offer tactical advice from the terraces. It's a form of mentoring for the players and often for the referee too. If Neil failed to place a shot exactly where the fans wanted it, they would scream words of encouragement. Poor shot, Robinson, they might say, or come on, you can do better than that, surely. Or words to that effect. On one occasion, there was an hysterical outburst from someone immediately behind me, offering a robust criticism of my younger brother's tactics, in words that implicated my mother, and by extension me. On instinct, I whirled around to deal with what was clearly a question of family honour. When I saw the manic fan's sighs and facial expressions, however, I, I agreed that he was probably right. Crowd behaviour is like that. Look, listen and learn. 
Some spectators really are skilled critics, and what they think about an event can genuinely help others to make better sense of it. The domains of literary criticism, music journalism and sports commentary all have distinguished members whose words speak to us deeply and who belong to tribes passionately dedicated to extending the discourse. This is different from simple fandom. It's a performance in the service of fandom that has definable levels of excellence and the makings of a true calling. Sportscaster Howard Kossel called one of his autobiographies I Never Played the Game. Yet he served for decades as one of the most important and influential voices in the US sports world. My guess is that Kossel found his element in sports, even though he wasn't an athlete. He knew he could enhance the average fan's sports experience and found a greater sense of who he was in doing so. Kossel once said, I was infected with my desire, my resolve, to make it in broadcasting. I knew exactly what I wanted to do and how. He was one of a key group of enthusiasts who became active participants in the world they admired by bridging the space between the players and the audience. And in every crowd and every audience, there may be someone who's responding differently from everybody else, someone who is having his own epiphany, someone who sees his tribe not on the bleachers around him, but on the stage in front of him. Billy Connolly is one of the most original and one of the funniest comedians in the world. He was born in a working-class area of Glasgow, Scotland, in 1942. He struggled through school, which he mostly disliked, and left as soon as he could to become an apprentice welder in the Glasgow shipyards. He served his time there, learning his trade and also absorbing the ways and customs of working life on the banks of the River Clyde. From an early age, Connolly loved music and taught himself to play the guitar and the banjo. Like Bob Dylan, growing up at the same time and an ocean away, he was captivated by folk music and spent whatever time he could listening and playing at folk clubs around Scotland. He also loved the pubs and the banter of Glasgow nightlife and made regular visits to the cinema, to Saturday night dances and to occasional live theatre. One night, Connolly was watching the comedian Chick Murray on television. For more than 40 years, Chick Murray had been a legend of comedy and music hall. His droll, acerbic wit epitomised the laconic take on life that typifies Scottish humour. Billy took his seat, ready for a riotous session with the great man. He had all of that, but he had something else. An epiphany. As he rolled around in his seat, he was acutely aware of the hysterical pleasure, the emotional release and the lacerating insights that Murray was detonating around himself. For Billy in Glasgow, this was as much of a turning point as listening to Woody Guthrie was for Bob Dylan in Greenwich Village. He realised that it was possible to do this, and that he was going to do it. He began to separate from the crowd and to merge with his tribe. Billy had always talked to his own small audiences between songs. Increasingly, he found himself talking more and singing less. He found, too, that the audiences were getting bigger. For many comedians of his generation, he went on to become the doyen of free-willing stand-up comedy. His work has taken him from the shipyards of the Clyde into packed theatres around the world, into award-winning movies as an actor and into the minds and affections of millions of people. Like most of the people in this book, he found his way not only when he found his element, but also when he found his tribe. Chapter 6 What Will They Think? Finding your element can be challenging on a variety of levels, several of which we've already discussed. Sometimes the challenge comes from within, from a lack of confidence or fear of failure. Sometimes the people closest to you and their image and expectations of you are the real barrier. Sometimes the obstacles are not the particular people you know, but the general culture that surrounds you. I think of the barriers to finding the element as three concentric circles of constraint. These circles are personal, social and cultural. This time it's personal. Given the way his life has worked out, it's interesting that several of Chuck Close's teachers and classmates considered him a slacker when he was a child. The kids thought so because he had physical problems that made him poor at sports and even the most rudimentary playground games. The teachers probably thought so because he tested poorly, seemed lazy and rarely finished his exams. It turned out later that he was dyslexic, but the diagnosis for this didn't exist when he was younger. 
To many outsiders, it didn't seem that Chuck Close was trying very hard to do anything with his life, and most thought that he wouldn't amount to much. On top of his learning disorder and his physical maladies, Close also faced more tragedy than any young boy should ever encounter. His father uprooted the family regularly, and then died when Chuck was 11. Around this time, his mother, a classical pianist, developed breast cancer, and the Close family lost their home when the medical bills overwhelmed them. Even his grandmother became terribly ill. What got Close through all of this was his passion for art. I think early on my art ability, he said, was something that separated me from everybody else. It was an area in which I felt competent, and it was something that I could fall back on. He even devised innovative ways to use art to overcome the restrictions of his conditions. He created puppet shows and magic acts, what he called entertaining the troops, to get the other kids to spend time with him. He supplemented his schoolwork with elaborate art projects to show teachers that he wasn't a malingerer. Ultimately, his interest in art and his innate gifts allowed him to blossom into one of the singular talents in American culture. After graduating from the University of Washington and getting his MFA at Yale, several of his earlier teachers had told him that college would be out of the question for him, Close set off on a career that was to establish him as one of America's most celebrated artists. His signature style involved a grid system he devised to create huge photorealistic images of faces alive with texture and expression. His method has drawn widespread attention from the media, and his paintings hang in top museums around the world. Through ceaseless dedication to his passion and his craft, Chuck Close overcame considerable constraints to find his element and rise to the pinnacle of his profession. But that's only the beginning of the story. In 1988, Chuck was making an award presentation in New York when he felt something wrong inside his body. He made his way to the hospital, but within hours he was a quadriplegic, the victim of a blood clot in his spinal column. One of the greatest artists of his generation could no longer even grasp a paintbrush. Early rehabilitation efforts proved frustrating, and this latest roadblock in a life filled with roadblocks seemed to be the one that would at last stifle his ambitions. One day, however, Close discovered that he could hold a paintbrush with his teeth, and actually manipulated well enough to create tiny images. I suddenly became very encouraged, he said. I tried to imagine what kind of teeny paintings I could make with only that much movement. I tried to imagine what those paintings might look like. Even that little bit of neck movement was enough to let me know that perhaps I wasn't powerless. Perhaps I could do something myself. What he could do was create an entirely new form of artwork. When he later regained some movement in his upper arm, Close began using rich colours to make small paintings that fit together to create a large mosaic image. His new work was at least as popular as his older work and earned him additional acclaim and notoriety. Throughout his life, Chuck Close has had endless reasons to give in to his problems and to give up as an artist. He chose instead to push on beyond every limit his life presented and to stay in his element no matter what new obstacles reared up in his way. He wouldn't let any of these things prevent him from being who he felt he was meant to be. Chuck Close is not alone in overcoming physical obstacles to pursue his passion. We'll meet some other people who've done this, and some of them may surprise you. The problems they face are not only physical, though physical disabilities can be torturous and aggravating in themselves. They also face problems arising from their own attitudes to their disability, and from the effects on their feelings of other people's attitudes to their disabilities. To overcome these physical and psychological barriers, people with disabilities of every sort must often summon enormous reserves of self-belief and determination to do things that other people can do without a second thought. Kanduko is a professional contemporary dance company based in Great Britain that includes disabled and non-disabled dancers. Over the years, the dancers have included single and double amputees, paraplegics in wheelchairs and people with a wide range of other conditions. The vision of the company, founded in 1982, is to inspire audiences and support participants to achieve their highest aspirations in line with the company's ethos that dance is accessible to everyone. Kanduko works to broaden the perception of dance through its performances and through its education and training program. The directors of the company say that Kanduko has always aimed high. High in quality of movement, 
high in integrity of dance as an art form, and high in expectations of ourselves as performers. Our focus, they say, is on dance, not disability. Professionalism, not therapy. One of a growing number of integrated companies in dance, theatre and music, their ambitions have been fulfilled through numerous international awards from professional dance critics and festivals around the world. To truly appreciate the Kanduko Dance Company, one reviewer noted, it's been said that one should discard all conventional notions of the dancing body. Why talk about swift and articulate footwork with pointed toes when legs are of no consequence? In these performances, representations of the perfect and physically complete body are thrown out of the window, introducing less than whole figures with no less talent than their able-bodied counterparts. Those who expected the Kanduko dancers to perform gravity-defying stunts with crutches and wheelchairs would have been sorely disappointed. Instead, their performance was a visual and psychological confrontation that was not so much a slap in the face, but a lingering thought that warms the heart and caresses the mind. Whether you're disabled or not, issues of attitude are of paramount importance in finding your element. A strong will to be yourself is an indomitable force. Without it, even a person in perfect physical shape is at a comparative disadvantage. In my experience, most people have to face internal obstacles of self-doubt and fear as much as any external obstacles of circumstance and opportunity. The scale of these anxieties is clear from the burgeoning worldwide market for self-help courses and books, many of which focus on just these issues. For me, the best in breed is Susan Jeffers' landmark book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's been translated into 35 languages and has sold millions of copies. In it, Jeffers writes with passion and eloquence about the gnawing fears that hold so many people back from living their lives in full and contributing to the world. These fears include the fear of failure, the fear of not being good enough, the fear of being found wanting, the fear of disapproval, the fear of poverty, and the fear of the unknown. Fear is perhaps the most common obstacle to finding your element. You might ask how often it's played a part in your own life and held you back from doing the things you desperately wanted to try. Dr. Jeffers offers a series of well-tested techniques to move from fear to fulfillment, of which the most powerful is explicit in the title of her book. Social. It's for your own good. Fear of disapproval and of being found wanting are often entangled in our relationships with the people closest to us. Your parents and siblings and your partner and children, if you have them, are likely to have strong views on what you should and shouldn't do with your life. They may be right, of course, and they can have positive roles as mentors in encouraging your real talents. However, they can also be very wrong. People can have complex reasons for trying to clip other people's wings. Your taking a different path might not meet their interests or might create complications in their lives that they feel they can't afford. Whatever the reasons... Someone keeping you from the thing you love to do, or even from looking for it, can be a deep source of frustration. There may be no conscious agenda from others at all. You may simply find yourself enmeshed in a self-sustaining web of social roles and expectations that forms a tacit boundary to your ambitions. Many people don't find their element because they don't have the encouragement or the confidence to step outside their established circle of relationships. Sometimes, of course, your loved ones genuinely think you'd be wasting your time and talents doing something of which they disapprove. This is what happened to Paolo Coelho. Mind you, his parents went further than most to put him off. They had him committed repeatedly to a psychiatric institution and subjected to electroshock therapy, because they loved him. The next time you feel guilty about scolding your children, you can probably take some comfort in not resorting to the Coelho parenting system. The reason Coelho's parents institutionalised him was that he had a passionate interest as a teenager in becoming a writer. Pedro and Legia Coelho believed this was a waste of his life. They suggested he could do a bit of writing in his spare time if he felt the need to dabble in such a thing, but his real future lay in becoming a lawyer. When Paolo continued to pursue the arts, his parents felt they had no choice but to commit him to a mental institution to drive these destructive notions from his head. They wanted to help me, Coelho has said. They had their dreams. I wanted to do this and that, but my parents had different plans for my life. So there was a moment when they couldn't control me anymore, and they were desperate. 
Coella's parents put Paolo in an asylum three times. They knew their son was extremely bright, believed he had a promising career ahead of him, and did what they felt they had to do to put him on the right track. Yet not even such an extreme approach to intervention stopped Paolo Coelho from finding his element. In spite of the intense family opposition, he continued to pursue writing. His parents were right in assuming he had a promising future ahead of him, but that future had nothing to do with the legal profession. Coelho's novel, The Alchemist, was a major international bestseller, selling more than 40 million copies around the world. His books have been translated into more than 60 languages, and he's the best-selling Portuguese language writer in history. His creative reach extends to television, newspapers, and even popular music. He's written lyrics for several hit Brazilian rock songs. It's entirely possible that Paolo Coelho would have made an excellent lawyer. His dream, though, was to write. And even though his parents tried extraordinarily hard to put him on the right course, he kept his focus on his element. Few of us are encouraged to conform to our family's expectations as firmly as Paolo Coelho was. But many people face barriers from family and friends. Don't take a dance programme, you can't make a living as a dancer. You're good at math, you should become an accountant, I'm not paying for you to be a philosophy major, and the rest. When people close to you discourage you from taking a particular path, they usually believe they're doing it for your own good. There are some with less noble reasons, but most believe they know what's best. And the fact is that your average office worker probably does have more financial security than the average jazz trumpeter. But it's difficult to feel accomplished when you're not accomplishing something that matters to you. Doing something for your own good is rarely for your own good if it causes you to be less than who you really are. The decision to play it safe, to take the path of least resistance, can seem irresistible, particularly if you have your own doubts and fears about the alternatives. And for some people, it seems easier to avoid ruffling feathers and have the approval of parents, siblings and spouses. But not for everyone. Some of the people in this book had to pull away from their families, for a while at least, to become the person they needed to be. Their decision to take the less comfortable route and accept the price of troubled relationships, tense family holidays and, in Coelho's case, even lost brain cells, eventually led them to considerable levels of fulfilment and accomplishment. What each of them managed to do was weigh the cost of disregarding their loved ones against the cost of relinquishing their dreams. When Ariana Stasinopoulos was a teenager in Greece in the 1960s, she had a sudden and passionate dream. Leafing through a magazine, she saw a picture of Cambridge University in England. She was only 13 years old, but she decided on the spot that she had to be a student there. Everybody she told about this, including her friends and her father, said it was a ridiculous idea. She was a girl. It was too expensive. She had no connections there. And this was one of the most prestigious universities in the world. No one took her seriously. No one except Ariana herself, that is. And one other person. Her mother decided that they had to find out if Ariana's dream was even remotely possible. She made some inquiries and learned that Ariana could apply for a scholarship. She even found some cheap air tickets so we could go to England and see Cambridge in person, Ariana said. It was a perfect example of what we now call visualisation. It was a long flight to London, and it rained the entire time they were in Cambridge. Ariana and her mother didn't meet anyone from the university. They simply walked around and imagined what it would be like to be there. With her dream reinforced, Ariana replied as soon as she was eligible. To her delight, and everyone's astonishment, except her mother's, Cambridge accepted Ariana, and she won a scholarship. At the age of 16, she moved to England and went on to graduate from Cambridge University with an MA in economics. At 21, she became the first woman president of the famed debating society, the Cambridge Union. Now based in the United States, Ariana Huffington is the author of 11 books on cultural history and politics, a nationally syndicated columnist and co-host of Left, Right and Centre, National Public Radio's popular political roundtable programme. In May 2005, she launched the Huffington Post, a news and blog site that's become one of the most widely read and frequently cited media brands on the internet. In 2006, Time magazine put her on their list of the world's 100 most influential people. For all her success, Huffington knows that the biggest obstacles to achievement can be self-doubt and the disapproval of other people.
She says this is especially true for women. I'm struck, she says, by how often when I asked women to blog for the Huffington Post, they had a hard time trusting that what they had to say was worthwhile, even established writers. So often, I think, we as women stop ourselves from trying because we don't want to risk failing. We put such a premium on being approved of, we become reluctant to take risks. Women still have an uneasy relationship with power and the traits necessary to be a leader, says Ariana. There's this internalised fear that if we're really powerful, we're going to be considered ruthless or pushy or strident, all those epithets that strike right at our femininity. We're still working at trying to overcome the fear that power and womanliness are mutually exclusive. Huffington says that there were two key factors in pursuing her early dream. The first was that she didn't really understand what she was getting herself into. My first taste of leadership, she says, came in a situation in which I was a blissfully ignorant outsider. It was in college when I became president of the Cambridge Union Debating Society. Since I'd grown up in Greece, I'd never heard of the Cambridge Union or the Oxford Union and didn't know about their place in English culture, so I wasn't weighed down with the kinds of overwhelming notions that may have stopped British girls from even thinking about trying for such a position. In this way, it was a blessing that I started my career outside my home environment. It had its own problems in that I was ridiculed for my accent and I was demeaned as someone who spoke in a funny way. But it also taught me that it's easier to overcome other people's judgments than to overcome our own self-judgment, the fear we internalise. The second factor was the unwavering support of her mother. I don't think that anything I've done in my life, she says, would have been possible without my mother. My mother gave me that safe place, that sense that she would be there no matter what happened, whether I succeeded or failed. She gave me what I'm hoping to be able to give my own daughters, which is a sense that I could aim for the stars combined with the knowledge that if I didn't reach them, she wouldn't love me any less. She helped me understand that failure was part of any life. Groupthink Positively or negatively, our parents and families are powerful influences on us. But even stronger, especially when we're young, are our friends. We don't choose our families, but we do choose our friends. And we often choose them as a way of expanding our sense of identity beyond the family. As a result, the pressure to conform to the standards and expectations of friends and other social groups can be intense. Judith Rich Harris is a developmental psychologist who has looked at the influences on young people of their friends and peer groups. She argues that three main forces shape our development, personal temperament, our parents and our peers. The influence of peers, she argues, is much stronger than that of parents. The world that children share with their peers, she says, is what shapes their behaviour and modifies the characteristics they were born with and hence determines the sort of people they'll be when they grow up. Children get their ideas of how to behave by identifying with the group and taking on its attitudes, behaviours, speech and styles of dress and adornment. Most of them do this automatically and willingly. They want to be like their peers. But just in case they have any funny ideas, their peers are quick to remind them of the penalties of being different. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Since breaking the rules is a sure way to find ourselves out of the group, we may deny our deepest passions to stay connected with our peers. At school, we disguise an interest in physics because our circle finds it uncool. We spend afternoons playing basketball when what we really want to do is master the five mother sources. We never mention our fascination with hip-hop because the people we travel with consider something so street to be beneath them. Being in your element may depend on stepping out of the circle. Sean Carter was born in the housing projects in Brooklyn, New York. Now known as Jay-Z, he's one of the most successful musicians and business people of his generation and an icon to millions of people around the world. To become all of that, he first had to confront the disapproval and the scepticism of the friends and peers he grew up with on the Brooklyn streets. When I left the block, everyone was saying I was crazy, he said of his early success. I was doing well for myself on the streets and the cats around me were like, these rappers are hoes, they just record, tour and get separated from their families while some white person takes all their money. I was determined to do it differently. His role model was the music entrepreneur Russell Simmons. And like him, Jay-Z now heads a diverse business empire that's rooted in his success as a musician, but goes beyond it to include a clothing line and a record label. 
All of this has generated a huge personal fortune for Jay-Z, and the renewed respect of many of the friends in Brooklyn he had to move aside to make his way. In extreme cases, peer groups can become trapped in what psychologist Irving Janis has called groupthink, a mode of thinking that people engage in when they are deeply involved in a cohesive in-group, when the members' strivings for unanimity override their motivation to realistically appraise alternative courses of action. The prevailing belief here is that the group knows best, that a decision or a direction that seems to represent the majority of the group stands beyond careful examination, even when your instincts suggest otherwise. There are several famous, and sometimes infamous, studies of the effects of groupthink, including the Solomon Ash conformity experiments. In 1951, psychologist Ash brought together college students in groups of 8 to 10, telling them he was studying visual perception. All but one of the students were plants. They knew the nature of the experiment, and Ash had instructed them to give incorrect answers the majority of the time. The real subject, the only one who Ash had not prepared ahead of time, answered each question only after hearing most of the other answers in the group. Ash showed the students a card with a line on it. He then held up another card with three lines of different lengths, and asked them to say which one was the same length as the line on the other card. One was an obvious match, but the planted students had been instructed by Ash to say that the match was one of the other lines. When it was time for the subject to answer, the effects of groupthink kicked in. In a majority of cases, the subject answered with the group, and against clear visual evidence at least once during the session. When interviewed later, most of the subjects said they knew they were giving the wrong answers, but did so because they didn't want to be singled out. The tendency to conformity in our society is so strong, Ash wrote, that reasonably intelligent and well-meaning young people are willing to call white black. This is a matter of concern. It raises questions about our ways of education and about the values that guide our conduct. Management writer Jerry B. Harvey gives another famous example, known as the Abilene Paradox. On a hot afternoon in Coleman, Texas, the story goes, a family is comfortably playing dominoes on a porch until the father-in-law suggests they take a trip to Abilene, 53 miles north, for dinner. As Harvey describes it, The wife says, sounds like a great idea. The husband, despite having reservations because the drive is long and hot, thinks that his preferences must be out of step with the group and says, sounds good to me. I just hope your mother wants to go. The mother-in-law then says, of course I want to go. I haven't been to Abilene in a long time. The drive is hot, dusty and long. When they arrive at the cafeteria, the food is as bad. They arrive back home four hours later, exhausted. One of them dishonestly says, it was a great trip, wasn't it? The mother-in-law says that actually she would rather have stayed home, but went along since the other three were so enthusiastic. The husband says, I didn't want to go. I only went to satisfy the rest of you. The wife says, I just went along to keep you happy. I would have to be crazy to want to go out in the heat like that. The father-in-law says that he only suggested it because he thought the others might be bored. The group sits back, perplexed that they together decided to take a trip which none of them wanted. They each would have preferred to sit comfortably, but didn't admit to it when they still had time to enjoy the afternoon. This is a benign but dramatic illustration of the consequences of groupthink. Every member of the group agreed to do something they didn't want to do because they thought the others were committed to doing it. The result was that no one came away happy. Allowing groupthink to inform our decisions about our futures can lead to equally unpleasant and much more consequential results. Accepting the group opinion that physics is not cool, playing basketball is better than learning to be a chef and hip-hop is beneath you, is counterproductive not only to the individual but to the group. Perhaps like those in the Abilene Paradox, others in the circle secretly disagree too, but are afraid to stand alone against the group. Groupthink can diminish the group as a whole. The major obstacles to finding the element often emerge in school. This is partly because of the hierarchy of subjects, which means that many students never discover their true interests and talents. But within the general culture of education, different social groups form distinctive subcultures. For some groups, the code is that it's just not cool to study. If you're doing science, you're a geek. If you're doing art or dance, you're a feat. 
For other groups, doing these things is absolutely essential. The power of groups is that they validate the common interests of their members. The danger of groupthink is that it dulls their individual judgment. The group thinks in unison and behaves en masse. In this respect, schools of people are like schools of fish. A single ant can't ruin a picnic. You've probably seen images of huge schools of fish swimming in tight formation that instantly move in a new direction like a single organism. Perhaps you've seen swarms of insects crossing the sky that spontaneously swoop and swirl like an orchestrated cloud. It's an impressive display that seems like controlled and intelligent behaviour. But the individual herrings or mosquitoes are not acting on free will as we think of it in humans. We don't know what may be on their minds as they go along with the crowd, but we do know that when they do it, they act almost as a single creature. Researchers are now understanding more about how this happens. The probability is that fish make those dramatic tight shifts in direction by following the movements of the fish that lie directly in their field of perception. What appears to be a masterwork of choreography is probably little more than an especially elegant version of Follow the Leader. To illustrate the point, there are now computer programs that simulate the effects of swarms and schools with remarkable accuracy. A similar principle seems to drive the operations of one of the oldest and most successful creatures on Earth, the ant. If you've seen an ant wandering aimlessly across your kitchen floor in search of a morsel to eat, you don't get a sense of a highly developed intelligence at work. Yet the work of ant colonies is a miracle of efficiency and success. Ants depend on what's known as swarm intelligence, the nature of which is currently the subject of intense study. While they've yet to understand fully how ants have developed such sophisticated teamwork, researchers do know that ants achieve their goals by fulfilling their own very specific roles with military precision. For instance, when looking for food, one ant starts on a path, leaving a trail of pheromones. The next ant follows this trail, leaving a trail of its own. In this way, a large collection finds its way to the food source and carries it back as a team to the colony. Each ant works towards a global goal, while no one ant takes the lead. In fact, there seems to be no hierarchy at all within ant colonies. Even the queen's one function seems to be to lay eggs. These patterns of coordinated group behaviour in fish, ants, mosquitoes and most other creatures are principally to do with protection and security, with mating and survival and with getting food and not becoming food themselves. It's much the same with human beings. We aggregate as groups for the same essential and primal purposes. The upside for us is that groups can be tremendously supportive. The downside is that they encourage uniformity of thought and behaviour. The element is about discovering yourself, and you can't do this if you're trapped into a compulsion to conform. You can't be yourself in a swarm. Culture, right and thong. Beyond the specific social constraints that we may feel from families and friends, there are others that are implicit in the general culture. I define culture as the values and forms of behaviour that characterise different social groups. Culture is a system of permissions. It's about the attitudes and behaviours that are acceptable and unacceptable in different communities, those that are approved of and those that are not. If you don't understand the cultural codes, you can look just awful. I'll always remember a man I saw who got it miserably wrong on a beach in Malibu in California. He strutted slowly into our midst, a vision of the unexpected that caused a beach full of strangers to form a deep bond of helpless camaraderie. He was about 40. My guess was that he was some sort of executive, and I can imagine that in certain settings he cut a distinguished figure. But here he did not. In a land of physical culture and treadmills, he was pale, hairy, and inhabited a sagging body that clearly spent its days at a desk and its nights on a bar stool. One can forgive a man for all of these things, but not for wearing a nylon leopard print thong. The thong clung to his groin like an oxygen mask. A stretch of elastic held it in place, skirting his waist and threading tightly between his bare buttocks. He paraded down the length of the beach, apparently delighted that every eye was turning to him in a slow Mexican wave of amazement. 
He gave the impression of a self-appointed role model of physical attraction and sexual magnetism, bathing in the bright sunlight of popular acclaim. This wasn't the majority opinion, however. At least he might have waxed, said the man next to me. Why was this so hypnotically amusing for us all? It wasn't just that he had such an outrageously high opinion of his own attractiveness. It was also that he was so far out of context. The outfit and attitude might have worked in the south of France, but in Malibu, for various reasons, it was all wrong. There's an unspoken code for men on California beaches. It's a curious mixture of peacock display and public modesty. Oiled torsos and rippling muscles are fine, but naked buttocks are not. All over America, there's this intricate mixture of prurience and prudishness. Shortly afterward, my wife Terry and I were in Barcelona. There are beaches there that line the harbour in the city centre, and every lunchtime during the summer, the local offices spill out, and young men and women head to the city beaches and sunbathe topless, in thongs at the very most. In Spain, that's completely accepted. It would be odd there to see someone in a pair of knee-length shorts and a T-shirt. The culture simply accepts that people can wander around virtually naked on the beach. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD.